0: Good morning, church. It is good to be with you guys. Today's obviously a little bit different with having our time of musical worship up front with the choir, but we are going to get into God's word. We are in this series called Unexpected Gift, and we're going to continue today as we talk through this and talk about the enemy of grace. I grew up in what would be called a irreligious home, one that didn't celebrate anything Protestant or Jesuit. We just didn't talk about anything in the Bible at all. Morals were an absolute, even if those morals came from from a place that we never actually discussed. You just didn't lie. You just didn't cheat. You just didn't steal. But for me, the way I'm wired is one who always wants to know the why behind the what. Always. Sometimes I don't even care about the point as much as I care about the motivation behind the what. I want to know why. And when you're a kid growing up, this can be exhausting as a question to your parents. And I, I think uh, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. To attempt for your parents to especially answer questions about, well, why do I have to clean my room? Well, because it's nasty, so go clean it. <laughs> now, my father grew up in a Catholic home. His mom and dad were married in the Catholic Church. He was a child who was, uh, went through confirmation. And then just a few years after he had gone through confirmation, his parents divorced. The church that they were a part of unfortunately disowned both my father and his mom when honestly in all reality they probably needed the community the most. This was the context in which my father grew up in with a lens of anger and resentment towards anything religious. My grandmother, my dad's mom, eventually became a Methodist, which is a more Protestant view of the Bible and the church, and she continued in her faith until the day she died, from what I remember. My father grew up with no allegiance to any type of religion. He spent most of his life learning different languages. In fact, right before he passed away, he was learning his 13th language. It was Korean, in case anyone cares. He grew up with a fa- uh, I grew up with a father who didn't believe... And it meant that I adopted some of the exact same uh, ways of unbelief. Part of it was because anything regarding the faith wasn't talked about. I wasn't informed, and also because of the terrible experiences that my father had had with the church, that he was an opponent to anything religious and what it stood for. I remember in my 20s, I'd become a Christian, and guess what? I wasn't a very soft-spoken Christian. I was pretty loud. I liked to debate. I like to debate about politics and faith with my dad, and every time my dad and I did this, it made my wife really uncomfortable. But I think for he and I, that was kind of our verbal way of playing catch. I disagreed with his stances, as he disagreed with mine. I'd pick apart his experiences and his beliefs as a bedrock for his beliefs through the things that he had experienced. And generally, he'd just eventually put his hand out and say, Tim, I don't care which was his right, but it didn't mean I had to agree with his right to not care. My father, in my mind, was a bit of what the Apostle Paul called himself to his young mentee, Timothy. He called himself an insolent opponent, which really meant he had a closed mind. I felt this way growing up. I felt that after my mom passed away when I was eight years old, that no matter what anyone said, no matter what any evidence anyone had about the faith of Jesus, I was not going to change my mind, and I didn't believe in God, and I wasn't going to be religious, and I didn't want to believe in any of the fairy tales, which it sounded like when people explained Christianity to me. But I share this story to give a bit of an insight of the human condition which is that we have experiences and opportunities to then create assumptions about how something is no matter how informed our experiences are. Today we continue this advent series called Unexpected Gift where we are taking a break from the book of acts and walking through the reason for the season as we celebrate at Christmas time which is about a gift. Church It's about this gift coming into our history, walking among us, and doing for us what we are unable to do. The series so far has walked us through a few different voices, singing a chorus of the Messiah who came to reign and rule. A few weeks ago, Pastor Mike, who's on a flight with his wife Karen, on the way back from the Philippines right now because our very own Daryl De La Cruz just got married. Woo-woo! Mike preached about this unexpected gift from the Old Testament prophet's point of view who God spoke through to prepare the way for the people to recognize the gift who was going to come in the work and person of Jesus Christ. The week after that, we looked at it from the disciples' perspective. These men, especially Peter, who had walked with Jesus physically for three and a half years, and for three of them had this an amazing moment physically where Jesus and Elijah and Moses all showed up on this mountain and appeared as God spoke about his son whom he was well pleased And yet you have Peter, who was on the mountain, who still denied Christ three times and didn't grasp who Jesus really was until Jesus rose from the dead. Last week, Ruth took us through the perspective of Jesus' own earthly family, specifically his brother James, who had gone from a non-believer to the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem. And today we're going to come once again from another perspective, one that is probably Really popular in Jesus' time, and unfortunately still pretty popular today. We're going to be looking at how this unexpected gift was seen through the eyes of an enemy. Someone against the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So who is an enemy, is usually the question that comes up. Well, for many, we believe it's those atheists, which I am a card-carrying member. I was an atheist for a long time or people of other religions who deny Jesus' deity. And while that could be part of it, I think we need to zoom in a bit and realize that it's not just the hardcore, but it's the apathetic and the nominal that choose to make Jesus a character and a story rather than the Lord of heaven and earth and their lives. But on top of that, it's also the legalist in and outside of the church that chooses law over grace. Now enter into this story a very religious young man named Saul who becomes Paul, so we're going to use both names, this Jew who was part of the Pharisees when the disciples were beginning to preach and testify that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Luke writes about this Saul, who will eventually become Paul, early on in the book of Acts, and we've been studying the book of Acts, and we spent some time in this, but we're going to cover it really quick. Acts 7, 57 and 58, Stephen, this, the first martyr in the church, was preaching that Jesus was the Savior, and here's what it said right as he was being dragged out to be killed. As they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him. Stephen dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Skip ahead, Acts 8, 1, 3 On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Then Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any of them who belonged to the way, that's the Christian movement, whether men or women, he might make them prisoners to Jerusalem. This was this historical account written by Luke about Saul's allegiance to what he believed was God and that God's plan for his life was to oppose this new Jewish sect that was claiming that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. So much so that Luke writes that this Saul was attempting to destroy the church. And this isn't someone who only opposes in words. This isn't someone who tweets badly about something. This is a violent man who is so offended by this message of grace that he personally brought fierce physical violence against those who attempted to spread the message of grace in the person and work of Jesus. Now, this application of violence that we see is what we deem as the evidence of opposition to Christianity. And yes, he wasn't just mildly opposing this message or the people, but what made him at odds with Christianity in the first place was as he was defending his religion, it was his pride that was unwilling to admit that perhaps he had been wrong in the past. This is what he meant as he wrote to the young pastor Timothy in his first letter after he had met Jesus. He wrote 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful. Say what? Appointing me to his service, though formally I was, Paul says, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, like most of us, tended to double down on what he believed to be true. Paul had a lot of pride in his religion which he makes known as he writes to the church in Galatia, chapter 1 of Galatians. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, I have to imagine for Saul, who would become Paul, this, uh, he was well-known as a Pharisee. It must have been impossible for him mentally and socially to go from persecutor of the church to submitted follower of Jesus, but that is how Paul, Saul's Greek name, that is how Paul would refer to himself in these letters that he writes to the churches that we have canonized in the New Testament. Let me walk you through a few. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. Paul begins the letter saying this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Philippians chapter one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ, the same Christ that he was attempting to bring down all who stood up for this Christ, he now had joined. First Corinthians chapter one, verse one, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is the salutation, the same salutation is used in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Ephesians. Why is that a big deal? Probably because Paul knew that his calling into the kingdom and his service was not one that he willed, but it was one that God had determined. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Pointing to God's sovereignty, Paul does, and the reality that God the Father raised the Son Jesus from the dead. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Titus chapter one, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Philemon chapter one, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So, what possibly happened to change Paul so radically? Well, a change of mind, but through what? An argument or an experience? I'd contend it's an experience that supplemented what Paul already knew to be true. This Saul, who eventually was referred to as Paul, had studied the scriptures, had studied the the first five books of the Old Testament that we know. He had taught them to other people, and he had proclaimed them to others, these Hebrew scriptures that were interpreted for him as a way to work your way to God. When Paul came in contact with Jesus post-resurrection in a vision, all of a sudden, I'd contend biblically because the Holy Spirit removed the veil from Saul's eyes and his inability to see the Old Testament as anything but an old rule book. When he came face to face with Jesus, the Spirit of God made known the will of God, that believing in Jesus is what the Old Testament is all about. And it was believing in the one who would and could fulfill the law, because we can't. Because Paul and any other Pharisee in his company also failed the law, but they realized that Jesus was the one who could keep it. This is what took place. When Paul ran into Jesus on the road to Damascus, the enemy of the king, if you will, did not continue to fight against the king. He came in contact with him, and then he joined him. We'll go back to Acts 9, verses 4 through 6. Luke writes, As he neared Damascus, Saul, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. a few things here. Jesus asked Saul why he persecutes him, which really, based on what we have read, Saul was persecuting the church. And for Jesus to to persecute Jesus' bride, the church was to persecute him. You know, if you have an issue with my wife, you kind of have an issue with me, don't you think? And those of us who identify with Jesus— who belong to his church, are grafted into Jesus's personhood. To persecute us, if we are truly his, by grace, through faith in Christ, is to persecute Jesus. And I need to remember this, because honestly, I want to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner every time I'm beaten up for my faith. And I'm not an avenger, church. I'm a disciple. See what I did there? And for us, it's easy to assume that Paul, who once was referred to by his Hebrew name Saul, was an example of an enemy of God's. But Paul, when speaking to the church in Ephesus, makes it far more inclusive than just the ones who want to persecute Jesus. He says this in Ephesians 2 verse 3. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest We were by nature deserving of wrath. That means you, each of us, have been an enemy of God. All of us. Don't tell me Christianity is exclusive. All of us are in need of Christ. And Paul is saying that all of us at one time have been an enemy of God. Not just the Saul types. Not just those who attempted with a closed mind to oppose Christ and his church and the faith. The problem is that our apathy towards this unexpected gift of grace found in the person and work of Jesus is just as spiritually dead as opposing the faith. And the reality is that apathy is far more prevalent in our human condition than atheism or fanaticism. Apathy is what each of us, even in our belief in Christ, have to contend against. Because anything we are constantly experiencing eventually loses its newness, and in some cases, its excitement. Jesus starts to speak these parables, and it's documented in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 4, you guys, if if you're a Bible person, if you read the Bible, you're familiar with what he's about to say. He says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and sat in on the lake. While all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teachings, he said this, verse 3, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Verse 4, as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. The problem is that we, you, me, each of us, can share the good news of the gospel, and it can absolutely be heard. It can absolutely be believed, and yet that belief does not lead to faith. See, faith has roots, because faith is a gift of God, not an intellectual decision that can be changed whenever we want it to. So we always say, hey, each sermon's got to have Ephesians 2.8 in it. Ephesians 2, eight. for it is by grace... You have been saved, grace, getting what you don't deserve. I got to hang with the youth on Friday for the Christmas party as uh, Parker and I were studying this. What is grace? Grace is getting a Nintendo Switch when you've been bad. That's grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. So I want you to look at that verse. Grace, we understand, is a gift. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's a gift. But, we, but read that verse very carefully. Paul is also talking about the faith in which we believe, which is also a gift from God. This is alluded to in the Gospels when Jesus goes to heal the young boy who is possessed by the demon, and the father is begging Jesus to intervene. Mark 9. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered It is often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you, Lord, or if you, Jesus, can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Church, we don't have a belief problem belief as far as acknowledgement. We have a root problem, which means we lack faith because we do not ask God like this father who desperately wanted to see his son healed. Help me, he says, with my unbelief. I don't know, honestly, church, what my life would be like for the past 22 years if God hadn't found me, drawn me, and saved me by his own hand. You know, Aaron probably wouldn't have married me if God hadn't brought us together the way that he did, which means my five beautiful, heavenly sandpaper dependents wouldn't exist. It means I wouldn't, those are my children, by the way. It, it means I wouldn't know, love, and serve Jesus. It means I wouldn't be pastoring this community. It means I wouldn't have shared Christ with those that I've gotten the honor to share Christ with. And while I'm not the point, I'm just a tool, Praise God for his ability to use a tool like me. But as I've quoted before, a pastor in my life's dad once said it this way God can use your mistakes, he just won't use your indifference. The sentiment is that our unwillingness to engage with God really hurts us more than we know. So, so if you're in this place and you're like, okay, like it's around Christmas time, this seems to be the time where I'm supposed to bring my friends who don't know Jesus. No, no, no. I'm talking to those of you who have identified with Jesus. Hear me. As a Christian, I don't believe sin separates us from God like the sin condition I had prior to coming to Christ, before I came to Christ, before he reigned and ruled in my life, but sin slows down my sanctification and it hinders my intimacy with god and nothing is more sinful than hearing the truth of god in his word and ignoring it as if it isn't true and it's not important this is the implication of what james makes known when he speaks about the faith and he speaks about works do works save you no they do not save you But works, when motivated out of love for God, works exemplify our belief and trust in God. Here's what he says, James 2, and I think for forever, I read this and I didn't see it until now. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, that means believers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, has no works, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. When we claim to love God... But hear his truth from this, when we read it on our own, when we listen to podcasts, when we come to church, when we hear his truth and we ignore it, we too are like this person that James claims that we want someone to be cared for, but we do nothing about it. Does that person really care? No, probably not. But what I want you and I to see today is that the unexpected gift is not one to take lightly. The gift, which is grace, getting what we don't deserve is something that most of us almost have an opposition to. Let me give you this example. We have a sense of what we consider justice, but that justice tends to not be what we want when we do something wrong. You know what we're saying? We want justice for those who have harmed us or have harmed someone that we care about. We want mercy when it comes to us doing something wrong. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace, getting what you don't deserve, I don't really have a compartment for that one because it's the opposite of what we expect and understand. But let me testify, testify. Grace for me has been shown in such unbelievable ways. And I'm here as a testimony and a trophy of grace from a boss who went to bat for me so I wouldn't go to jail when I did stupid things as a teenager to a girl who knew me at my worst as I was making fun of her and her friends as Christians who fell in love with me anyway once God had gotten a hold of me, to growing up in an only-child household that didn't believe in Jesus, to having five children of my own, to purchasing a house with the help of some people who chose to give up the rights of their own luxury to help our family to be able to get into the market at a time when interest rates were ridiculously low, to a church family that has changed and has been pruned over the years to be a congregation of people who understand that their pastor, I'm not perfect, but you follow my lead of being willing to admit shortcomings and not point people to yourself and not point people to me, but to point people to our Lord. We as a church want to grow in the knowledge of the Son, Man, I want to not just know Jesus's statistics. I want to know what Jesus orders at Starbucks. You know what I'm saying? Except he probably goes to Pete's for the record. And to understand grace better each day. And it is truly an honor and privilege to champion a vision like that among a people who too want to grow in grace and Christ likeness as we pursue the perfect one. But church, let me be real. And like I thought of us as as I was writing the sermon, Apathy, to not care, is the enemy of grace. Because it takes away from how amazing our God is to be reminded and enamored with the fact that while we were at our worst, Christ died for us. This is why Jesus says what he says to war against apathy. Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea in the final letter written in the New Testament, Revelation, He says to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3 of Revelation, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, for those of you in my generation, I always think of Wayne's World. If you're going to spew, spew in this cup. All right, sorry. That's just for a few of us. Jesus has harsh words for the church in Laodicea. They'd become like so many, attending a church gathering when they felt like it, serving when it was convenient for them, giving money when they felt guilty for some reason of something they had done, The church had probably continuously heard the word of God and ignored it. The church in Laodicea had probably made it a ritual to put in time to check a box, but did not expect anything to change. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of all preachers, is one of his nicknames. He said it this way, The devil does not care how many churches you build, if only you have lukewarm preachers and people in them. Now, an external win means nothing without first an internal transformation that is motivated by God and His glory. When I began dreaming and praying about planting a church, and for those of you that are new, I was part of a church plant. We planted a church, and then Church of the Valley and that church plant merged together. I think I, personally, when I was dreaming about planting the church, was more fixated on what I didn't like in churches around me, more than I was struck by the want to have God glorified. So let me just be honest about that. Now in this time, this time of dreaming and preparing and planting of a church, there just wasn't time to be apathetic, which I think for many people is part of the appeal. It's new, it's exciting, it's uncharted waters. But the reality is that being the church, the people of God is definitely a marathon not a sprint. Sprint ministry, to just run real quick for just a little bit of time, sprint ministry is a lot easier, a lot more exciting, and a lot less impactful for the kingdom of God. But marathon ministry exposes one's commitment to God and his glory. It's a trek to continually walk with Jesus. It isn't always a mountaintop experience. It isn't always flashy and fun. It's what the Christian life is, which is a marathon, a lifetime, a lifestyle of daily trusting and following Jesus. Even though Christians have the Holy Spirit, when we commit to Jesus, it doesn't mean that this is automatic. I don't wake up with gratitude in my heart for Jesus like I should. I don't naturally want to flee from sin and run to our Lord. I don't pursue righteousness like I ought to. All of these things are things I'm equipped to do but it requires my effort and constant reminder from God's word and his people and his spirit of what I am able to do because of the salvation that he's gifted to me. So Jesus, after calling out the church in Laodicea, has a very consistent remedy throughout all of scripture or a cure for this disease, which is apathy, the enemy of grace. Here's what he says, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, he says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Have you been disciplined by the Lord, church? You know what that makes you? Makes you a son. Makes you a daughter of the God most high. Praise God for his discipline. He disciplines because he loves us, not as an abusive father, but as a father who knows that equipping requires telling his children no sometimes. So what does Jesus tell his church to do? Be earnest, wholehearted, zealous for God, and repent. Repentance, now I, I know some of you have heard repentance or you've seen the guys on the street corner with the sign and they're yelling repent. That is not the biblical view of repentance. Repentance in the scriptures was always an invitation to be intimate with God. Repent means to change direction. Repent means to admit your shortcomings and change course. I read a lot of quotes this week. And Spurgeon, even though he was alive in the late 1800s, was the best tweeter before it was even invented. Here's what he says. Conversion is a turning onto to the right road. The next thing to do is to actually walk on that road. For many of us, we made some type of conversion, some type of decision to trust Jesus. But again, acknowledgement isn't faith. Faith has roots. Faith works. And so, what Spurgeon points out is that when we first believe, we know which road to walk down. But we still gotta walk down that road. Otherwise, our knowledge of knowing the right road means nothing spiritually. A lot of us have had a relationship with Jesus for quite some time now. But let's be real. Can we be real? Let's not lie in church, at least. It's kinda monotonous, isn't it? It's kinda tedious. It's kinda Groundhog Day ish. You know what I'm saying? Jesus says, be earnest. Repent. Repent with your whole heart. If Jesus is who he says that he is, if he has done what the Bible says that he has done, if he has truly rescued you, then don't take this relationship with God lightly. Repent. Change direction. Even now, And know that this unexpected gift isn't one that we just open and then put in the closet. But it's the one that we're in awe of daily. And we daily repent. We daily change direction. We daily point back to trusting Him. And as we do, we will find more and more joy in this gift, which is grace, personified in Jesus Christ our Lord, But there's one other consistent warning and application that I want us to point to from what Jesus says to the church in Revelation. And I think it ought to mean a lot to us, especially around Christmas time. As Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, in Revelation 2, he says this, you have persevered, and you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Let me be real, the past few years, Wow, they've been hard. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen and do what? What's that word? Repent. And do the things you did at first. Laura, come on up. Remember when you first came to know Jesus? Like, think back to that time if you've committed to Jesus Christ. Remember when you first realized that your sins had been forgiven? What? That your adoption had been completed and that Jesus was resurrected? <sighs> Remember that love? Remember that unhibited, unhibited love that came out of you When you first became a child of God, repent, change direction, turn back to him and worship. I've had many markers throughout my life where God has gotten my attention like never before. Because I'm, man, I need to be reminded, any of you? My need for him was more obvious to me than normal because this marker was put in front of me. And repentance, to change direction, became like a warm blanket. We need some warm blankets right now. Turning back to God and realizing that he was never, ever far from me in the first place has been one of the most beautiful things for me to experience when I know I've failed. Maybe this is a good season for you. Maybe it's a hard season. Jesus has the same application for each and every one of us. Earnestly seek him and repent.